friends. It's wonderful to see you all this morning. We've uh, we had a very pleasant meeting last night, and and as uh, our brother uh, has uh, said, we've had a, a wonderful night's rest, and we are are ready for the good things of the spirit which we expect. Uh, through the uh, through the day, it is my purpose as the opening speaker to direct my remarks, especially to the young people and to those older persons who have not as yet made up their mind on the greatest decision of their life. We in this generation have not felt the hardships and the severe privations of war, despite the fact that a good many of us here this morning have lived through the two greatest wars in history. But we are today living under an uneasy peace. There are still air raid precautions being taken to guard against a sudden attack. If the siren should suddenly sound a warning to evacuate Richmond, everyone would try to find a way out of the city and go as far into the country as possible. We have all heard of the dangers not only of the immediate effects of the atomic bomb, but of the more deadly effects of fallout. We should take the necessary precautions to avoid being caught in such a position, but there is something that we should fear, worse than man and all of his destructive inventions. It is the wrath of God that will be poured out onto this sinful world. Jesus gave his apostles good advice before sending them out to preach the gospel. He told them, Fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him that is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. To those that belong to Christ, the worst that man can bring upon him death itself will be only a sleep. What God surely will bring eternal death to all of those who do not accept his gracious offer of salvation. God has not forsaken those who worship him in spirit and in truth. He has provided a way of escape from the things that are coming upon the world. And it is recorded in, in this Bible. And it is this offer of salvation that we will discuss this morning. To the young people, 
I wish to call to your attention the facts taught in the scriptures. The way of life, it opens unto, up unto you in opposition to the ways of the world and the decision that you will be called upon to make in the next few years of your life. To those of the house, to those older people of here this morning who are not yet members of the household of faith, I wish to remind you that you are now standing at the forks in the road. You do not know what the future has in store for you. Therefore, if you wait for a more convenient time, you have no idea what difficulties you may incur, sickness, accident, or even death itself may occur to prevent you from making that all-important decision. There is a possibility that you can put off God too long. Now is your hour of decision. Will you continue along the broad way that leadeth to destruction? Or will you enter into the narrow way that leadeth to life eternal? Even those of the household of faith can take note of, the, of these words and examine themselves to determine if they are still following the narrow way or if they have again wandered back into the broad way. In the last two verses of the 29th chapter of Matthew, we read, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things and And whatsoever I have commanded of you, and lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. This was the very last commandment given by Jesus Christ to his apostles before his ascension into heaven. We know that between the time that Jesus gave this last commandment to the apostles and the evangelistic sermon of Peter, which has just been read, that Christ ascended to heaven and the promise was made by an angel of his return in like manner as he went up into heaven and then, then the coming of the Holy Spirit revealed in flames of fire upon the heads of the disciples. The last event, the bestowing of the Holy Spirit upon the disciples of Jesus, was the beginning of the Church of Christ. We know that it was not a building, but the organized body of believers, which is destined to become the bride of the Master, and which is generally referred to by Christadelphians as Ecclesiastes. 
We this morning will take this opportunity to carry out this last commandment of Christ and to extend to you the opportunity of salvation which or the Almighty God has given you. It is not our endeavor to any, anything to what the Apostle Peter said, because he had just been imbued with the Holy Spirit, and his discourse speaks for itself. We find its result was electrifying, and I think it—I don't think anybody will challenge me saying that none of the millions of sermons delivered since that time has ever had the same effect. Peter spoke with a conviction that came from a close association with the Master. It was reinforced with the power of the Holy Spirit, a knowledge of the Old Testament Scriptures, and the zeal of a profound belief in his subject. In these days of loudspeakers and public address systems, it is hard to realize the strength of Peter's voice, the size of his audience, and the conversion of 3,000 souls in one day. The people he was talking to knew the Old Testament scriptures. They were expecting their Messiah, and they had only to be shown the way of life. When we start to consider the facts, it becomes even more impressive that such a vast throng could have heard his voice. Writing in his latter years, he gives a clue to his power of persuasion in his second epistle, chapter 1, verses 16 to 18, when he writes, For we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we have made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory. When there came such a voice from him from the excellent glory, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And this voice which came from the mouth we heard when we were with him in the Holy Mount. Many of you here this morning know the truth, but have not accepted. Peter's wonderful message applies equally to us in these latter days. Those of you who have ears to hear can hear these mighty words echoing down through the centuries. Repent and be baptized. J. 
Jesus gives us a wonderful invitation to accept God's eternal promise of salvation. And his words are preserved for us in the 11th chapter of Matthew, verses 28 to 30. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. This passage of scripture is certainly familiar to most of you here this morning. And I doubt if you can find another passage in the Bible that has given more comfort and more peace of mind to the sad, the discouraged, and the weary-hearted throughout 2,000 years. It is a call for discipleship. Come to me, learn of me, take my yoke. This same thought was expressed by the prophet Jeremiah 600 years before the Gospel of Matthew was written, when he said, Thus saith the Lord, Stand ye in the ways, and see, and ask for the old path, where is the good way, and walk therein, and ye shall find rest for your souls. Have you ever stopped to think just what the yoke of Christ means? Let us first consider what a yoke is. I saw one in use a number of years ago. But this motor age has made a literal yoke a museum piece. So that many of our young people are not familiar with the term in a material sense. It is used primarily to join two oxen together in order that they may pull a cart or a plow in unison. The best way to describe one is to say that it consists of a piece of timber curved near each end and fitted with bows to receive the neck of the ox. There is generally a ring or a hook in the bow, and from that a chain extends to the object to be hauled. A yoke is therefore something which unites two creatures for some particular task. There may be a harmo it may be a harmonious yoking, an uneven yoking, or a totally unwilling yoking. And we find that it is of this unwilling yoking that has long made the yoke a symbol of slavery and oppression. And it is used in this 
sense a number of times in both the Old and the New Testament. But what was the meaning attached to it by Jesus? And why did he use this expression? He had observed the people of his day living under many yokes. The Jews were living under the unwilling yoke of the Roman Empire. The common people of his day were subject to puppet kings, such as Herod. Even their religion had, had degenerated to such a sad extent that we are told in the 15th chapter of Acts, the 10th verse. Now, therefore, why tempt ye God to put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? But the yoke of Jesus is just the opposite of this popular conception of the term. We find that instead of being an unwilling yoke, it is a willing yoke. With it, we are entered into harness with, with Jesus. We share his outlook, approach his way of life, and copy his meekness and his lowliness of heart. In this way, we will develop the nobleness of character that every true follower of Christ must possess and be worthy of inheriting eternal life. Instead of being a symbol of slavery, the yoke of Christ represents the bond which draws us close and unites us with him. It enables us to bear the trials of this life to withstand the temptations of the flesh and to hold fast to the things of the truth. The yoke of Jesus offers us is a symbol of liberation and not of slavery. When we are truly yoked with him, our life is free from many problems. The irritations and worries that come from pride and from selfish ambition. From a, from a desire for outward show and from self-will. These are the things which cause so much unhappiness and are not to be found with the meek and the lowly of heart. The yoke of Christ frees us from those physical desires and habits which are harmful to our bodily health. By faith and reliance on God, our mind will be free from the transient worries of this life, and we will be receptive to that peace of God which passes all understanding. The will of God, which Jesus fully obeyed, is the yoke he intends man 
to share with him. In his submission to God's will will be found the instruction of God to be good and well fitted to his shoulder and the rest of soul that he experienced. He offers to all of his yoke fellows. With this in mind, let us submit to the will of God. Let us submit with humbleness, with humility, and with meekness. An invitation is also extended by Jesus in the third chapter of Revelations, the 20th to the 23rd verse. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am sat down with my father in his throne. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Here we see Christ again coming to us and knocking for an entrance into our hearts. Can anyone who knows and believes the scriptures refuse to open the door of their hearts and mind to him? Can anyone who actually believes the message of the Bible turn a deaf ear to his knocks? or put him off until a more convenient time. Take this question to yourself. Personally, and answer it. Jesus extends still another invitation to all in his Sermon on the Mount when he says, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. When we truly seek God and obey his commandments, we are seeking the kingdom of God. Micah reduces it to a very few words when he writes, What doth the Lord require of thee but to do justly to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God. Solomon sums up man's duty to God in a very short passage of Scripture. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. There is only one way to seek God. And he has laid it down in his scriptures. We must first hear God's word. We must understand his word. We must believe his word. And above all, we must obey his word. Peter brought this out to his audience in his great son. 
There were all Jews, as, as I said before. They were familiar with the promises made by God, and they expected their Messiah. It was only Peter's duty to convince them that Jesus was actually the Messiah. And when they realized the enormity of their sin in crucifying their Savior, it is written, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and to the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is made unto you and to your children and to all that are far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. And with many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourself from this untoward generation. And they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day were added unto them about three thousand souls. In the very last chapter of the Bible, a final appeal is made to mankind to avail itself of God's great plan of salvation. And the Spirit and the Bride say, Come, and let him that heareth say, Come, and let him that is the first come, and whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. What does this invitation mean? It means the difference between eternal life and eternal death. Not something for this temporal life which will pass away within a few years, but something that will endure forever. Not an existence in a world of sin, sickness, war, and death, but an existence in a world of righteousness, joy, peace, and eternal existence. It is true that we all must die and go down to the grave, but to those who repent and are baptized, death is only asleep, with resurrection as its next conscious moment. The Apostle Paul, in writing to the Thessalonians, says, but I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. But to those who do not accept God's presence, gracious plan of salvation, we find that their fate is indeed eternal death, which is described by the prophet Isaiah. They are dead. They shall not live. They are deceased. They shall not rise. Therefore thou hast visited and destroyed them, and make all their memory to perish.
We are appealing to you young people here this morning to prepare yourselves. Learn of God's great plan of salvation. You will be forced to make certain decisions, to choose who will be your friends and what course of action you will have to follow. The ways of the world will seem very attractive to you, and so it has always been. But you will find that anticipation is much more attractive than realization. After you have done the things that seem so attractive to you, you will find that they were not quite as pleasant as you had anticipated. Perhaps your conscience will begin to worry you a little bit. Very likely you will become a little ashamed of the company you have chosen and of the places that you have frequented. On the other hand, what does the truth hold for young people? It certainly is not glamorous. It is not a social society as some of the churches of the world are. Our numbers are few. But the truth is principally a serious endeavor to please God by keeping his commandments. But our young people are not, designed, are not denied the wholesome and harmless pleasures of sports. Some of you are wondering why you should bother about the religious training now because you can wait until you become older before giving thoughts to the more serious things of life. But the training that you receive in the home and in the Sunday school will help you to make the right decision. There will come a time when you young people will arrive at the time of the decision. And if you have taken advantage of the opportunities that have been offered you, you will have obtained the necessary knowledge and understanding to be able to discern good from evil and truth from error. You will not hesitate then to take the right way and to eventually accept God's great, gracious offer of salvation. To those of more mature years, who have not as yet made a decision, I ask this question. Can you afford to refuse God's offer of salvation? And may I offer an illustration? A man has fallen into a deep well, and he is standing in water up to his neck, and is slowly but surely sinking into the soft bottom. Everything is dark except a small shaft of light coming, to, coming from the mouth of the well 20 feet above him. Suddenly, a face appears in the opening and offers a rope as a means of escape. 
What decision should the man make to tie a rope around his waist and be hauled back into the light of day or to refuse the aid offered him and to perish in the icy waters of doom? Now, this may seem like a gruesome story to relate this morning, but its appliance to you is very obvious. Paul told the Ephesian brethren before they came into the truth that at that time ye were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise having no hope and without God in the world. What can the world offer you at best but a few years of pleasure and health? It may even be sadness and ill health and then eternal death. Not a pretty picture, I'm sure. But it need not be so. There is a way of escape. If you enter into covenant relationship with God by repentance and baptism and remain faithful to the end, it is written. And God shall wipe away all tears from your eyes. There shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. Can you afford to put off repentance and baptism until a more convenient time? None of us here have a lease on life. No man knows the hour of his death or the hour the Son of Man will come. Will you be like the man at the bottom of the well and reach for the life-giving rope? Or will you be so foolish as to decline it and to perish? To those of you here this morning, who oh, have already made a covenant relationship with God, I ask you to examine yourself and see if you are living the life that a believer should, or if you have strayed back into the road that leadeth to destruction. If, ye, if you have fallen by the wayside, there is still time for repentance. For it is written, Likewise, joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repenteth more than ninety and nine persons which needeth no repentance. God also tells us, Come now, let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they be like crimson, they shall be as wool. Now, we're not attempting to work upon the emotions, but have set forth the truth as is taught in the scriptures. I hope that you will all give it very serious thought and consideration. 
you can readily see that this message is for everyone here this morning. For the young people, I urge you to live upright lives and use your time of preparation to obtain the knowledge which will lead you to make the right decision. To those mature people who have not come to a decision, I urge you to make this wonderful blessing offered to those who have become children of God, lest they slip away from you. Now is the acceptable day of the Lord. Tomorrow may be too late. To those of the household of faith, I leave to your minds and consciences to determine if you are living the life of a, that a believer should. Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call ye upon him while he is near.